you know, it's really not for a bank to be policing our thoughts. You know, it's an extraordinary situation that we're in where a regulated entity, which should, its primary motive should be the making of money, is actually judging whether or not it's prepared to do business with you based on what your views of various issues are. I mean, it's remarkable. NetWest is embroiled in a major scandal after their subsidiary Coot took away Nigel Farage's bank account. The major bank, which is still 40% government-owned, has been accused of procedural mistreatment, false accusations, and some severe privacy breaches. The resulting foray has not only led to a public apology, but a top-level defenestration, with the CEO, Alison Rhodes, being ousted in the middle of the evening this week. Welcome back to the IA podcast. I'm Matthew Lesh, the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top thinker. This week's question is, why was Nigel Farage debanked? To discuss, I'm excited to be joined by Ben Habib. He's a former member of the European Parliament, a businessman and a commentator, and he's been writing about this scandal for The Telegraph, where he also contributes regularly. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you for having me on. I mean, I, w- I want to kind of get back to, b- before we kind of get into the, the gruesome details, how, how this mess has unfolded for the last um, almost month since Nigel Farage originally uploaded a video suggesting that he'd had his bank account taken away. We seem to have been going around here in a, a bit of a roller coaster of different accusations flying back and forth. Yeah, so Nigel, um, out of the blue, I suppose, did a little um, sh- sort of video of himself explaining that he'd been debanked by Coots um, and that he had nowhere to take his money. He, I think he said in his initial video, he'd approached 10 banks, they'd all declined him. Um, I know he certainly said that since then, he may have said that in that initial video. And I remember bumping into Nigel at GB News shortly after that video. And I said to him, um, very brave video, by the way, Nigel, you know, because I appreciate that coming out, putting your head above the parrot as we're coming out in that way is going to make it challenging getting a new bank account. You know, people won't, will be a bit nervous of taking you on as a client if, you, if you're attacking Coots, you know, which is a kind of bastion of our banking community. And, um, and I said to him that I myself had been debanked in 2020 by my bank then, and I didn't know about subject access requests and so on. And I just found I did all the work that I needed to do to find a new bank account. And in my case, by the way, in 2020, it certainly could not have been to do with the uh, with the level of deposits being inadequate because my company was also banking with the same bank. And we had you know, many millions of pounds on deposits. It just could not have been that issue. Um, but anyway, so I bumped into Nigel at GB News and... Uh, and he was absolutely committed to the battle. And you've got to take a hat off to Nigel. You know, once he gets stuck in something, he's a formidable campaigner. And the reputational committee at Coots, I bet, seriously regrets trying to manage the reputational risk by challenging Nigel Farage. They would have been best to stay well away, I think. <laughs> I think this is indeed one of the great ironies of this whole situation is that the, the um, group within Coots that was responsible for this whole mess was the Reputational Management Committee who decided that, um, uh, at least in part, that he, he was the risk. I mean, I think this has been through, through many different iterations because and where Coots has, has really gotten, I suppose, the most trouble is not the decision itself, but perhaps the cover-up. 
and and the the mistreatment and the privacy breaches yeah. this decision by the the ceo of of coots to brief um a, a very senior journal of bbc simon jack who's the business editor suggests that the decision was made purely on commercial grounds um and then i mean that was perhaps believable you know i suppose as an outside of the situation we had no capacity necessarily to question the claims of the bank that that was their reasoning until of course the subject access request and we saw that this extraordinary document um that showed that indeed Newt Coots was um very very carefully considering his political views um and as as a reasoning behind debanking him yeah I mean it had clearly monitored a great deal of his output to determine what his views were across a the board. I mean, we all know what Nigel Fionn Brexit is, but they looked at lots of other stuff and um, they got a dossier on him in effect. And, you know, it's really not for a bank to be policing our thoughts. You know, it's an extraordinary situation that we're in where a regulated entity, which should its primary motive should be the making of money, is actually judging whether or not it's prepared to do business with you based on what your views of various issues are. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it, there's some, it, basically the, the bank seems to make a, a kind of dual argument here. On the one hand, they uh, in that document, I get the sense that they're using the the fact that his mortgage is coming to an end to say that he's no longer a commercial client. But they're also worried that um, continuing to bank him is inconsistent with being an inclusive organization. Quote. And but actually, even I find the most extraordinary line in there, to the line that says this was not a political decision, but one centered around it inclusivity and and they capitalized the word purpose. So the fact that they the fact that they go yeah. through a bunch of his political positions and that they don't think it's a political decision just just to me says that, that there's a kind of groupthink or indoctrination. I mean the reputation also doesn't seem to assess the reputational risk to NatWest of deciding to take away his bank. Okay. I mean, it's extraordinary. It's really bad thinking, you know, really flawed thinking. But it's it's I mean you're quite right, Matthew, to say it's groupthink, but it's groupthink driven with a regulatory motive. You know, there is the there is an overarching obligation for all regulated businesses listed entities companies to have this sort of greater social purpose which i'm sure we'll get to in in due course in this discussion and it's through that mechanism that that group think came to be established you know that yeah i'm keen to unpack this because um in my first instinct as, as someone who who doesn't want to see more uh, state control of of banks and 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 overregulation in a way that um, just kind of adds to to the general burdens facing businesses. I think that's generally something the the government and people are generally I, I think rush too quickly to say what we need to fix X problem is Y piece of regulation. Um, I'm kind of sympathetic to the idea that perhaps Coots to some extent should be able to make decisions on the basis of of who they um, want to be their clients, and I'm not even necessarily that angsty if they make those decisions on the wrong grounds. Um, what does worry me, and, and I think you've unpacked, is when they're being incentivized to make those decisions by regulators and by all sorts of different um, uh, out outlets and pressures that are influencing it. So it's not really a neutral decision as much as it's um, something that they feel like they need to do in order to comply with yeah. a state mandate. Correct. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about ESG right now, but indeed, go yeah. go, go go. So, so I'm I'm interested in, yeah. in what the financial conduct authority has been doing on ESG 
this does seem to be something they have a major strategy on. They've, they've been issuing, talking about issuing guidance and targets for, for environmental social government's responsibilities. It seems that in the first instance yeah. sends a signal to banks, even if they haven't got any formal regulation about ESG necessarily just yet, that, that they should be heading in that direction because that's what the regulation Yeah, so, I mean, ESG in itself, I don't think there's any specific legislation which addresses ESG directly, but ESG is born out of a regulatory network. So if you look at section 172 of the Companies Act 2006, it gives a broader social purpose to companies and directors, an obligation to look beyond just the, beyond just the making of profit as your raison d'etre. The same applies to listing rules. Um, and the same applies to the Bribery Act, Slavery Act, Employment Act, and I can name them, I can name all the acts, but it would take quite a while to go through the provisions of each one of those acts to piece it all together. And it's because it's everywhere and uh, it's difficult to really pin it down. So when I had a chat about this with Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, he said, well, there's no particular legislation that requires you to comply with ESG. Yes, but you can't get on as a company unless you do it. Um, you know, all public entities effectively are required now to comply with ESG. All entities that deal with public entities are obliged to comply with ESG. If you want a mortgage, a commercial property mortgage, I, I, I deal in commercial property, you have to, you have to comply with ESG legislation. Um, if you want to be a public company, you have to report on it in your annual report. You're required to do it under listing rules. And of course, the minute you're obliged to report on it, you have to have a view on it and you have to have a policy which describes what it, you know, how you're addressing it. So ESG is everywhere. And the problem that I've got with ESG is that it has a seat at the table of corporate governance, a very big seat at the table, but it's not clearly defined. So essentially ESG, just to break it down for viewers who aren't familiar with it, stands for environmental, social and corporate governance. Uh, the environmental part of the equation is a drive towards net zero. It's foisting onto the private sector and indeed the public bodies and other regulated entities that I mentioned, an obligation to have a policy on how they get their organization towards net zero, what their organization is doing to deliver net zero. The S, the social aspect, is delivering social justice in the communities in which they operate, making sure that um, they're providing a social component to their operations. And then good corporate governance is obviously good corporate governance. We understand more about that. And it's been part of the fabric of British e economic ecosystem, if you like, for 30 years. You may not remember this, Matthew, it will predate you, but the Cadbury's report was the thing that kicked it off in the 1980s. And it's you know, progress from there. But we all mm -hmm. kind of get corporate governance. It's the first two things that are amorphous, undefined. And whilst we have an obligation as directors to nod to them, to address them, we're not given specific instructions in any regulations on how to comply with them. And Nigel, of course, if we use Nigel as an example um, in the ESG context, Nigel, of course, wants a public debate on net zero. So if, you, if you're a company that, that is obliged through the regulatory framework to drive towards net zero, Nigel immediately is in conflict with your adopted regulatory uh, position. And then as far as social justice is concerned, the vast majority of companies, my company perhaps being uh, an outlier, but the vast majority of companies have 
nodded towards their move for social justice under ESG by adopting diversity and inclusion. And diversity and inclusion basically means the promotion of ethnic minorities, minority religions, um, all sorts of gender identities, promoting them. And um, if necessary, and this is where Nigel has an issue with it, and I have an issue with it, and I can describe what my company has done, if necessary, to the detriment of the ethnic majority. So, you know, Black Lives Matter um, is something that a lot of organizations have adopted as part of their core ESG policies. It's something I disagree with because I think all lives matter. So if you look at the ESG policies for First Property Group, the company that I run, the S aspect explicitly says we're blind to ethnicity, we're blind to religious background, mm. we're blind to sexual preferences. And that's a very different position to Coots. But Coots and Nat West's position on diversity and inclusion is the default position that most organizations have adopted. So people like Nigel, who again, regard all lives as being equal and not championing one particular ethnic minority over any other, um, again, find themselves automatically in conflict with the, with the ideology of a, a, of a bank like Coots. So that's where the fundamental difference in ideology came about. But because Coots is obliged under its regulatory framework to give effect to its ESG policies, I think it felt able to look at Nigel and judge him. And the same judgment, I suspect, Matthew, is taking place not just with banks, but with every regulated entity. So if you're a pension fund provider, insurance company, um, mm -hmm. any, any entity that has the FCA, PRA, or Bank of England, or any one of the other regulatory bodies looking over its shoulder, will be required to have a view on all of this and will be applying it to its customers. And so we saw, um, for example, Grind, the coffee maker, pulling its advertising from GB News the other day because it judged GB News to be putting out hateful news messages, even though GB News itself is Ofcom regulated. GB News is itself a regulated entity, but um, Grind, because of its view on ESG, felt able to withdraw its advertising. We saw Lush, the soap maker. I mean, what is making soap got to do with gender ideology uh, or indeed any of these other matters? But Lush came out saying all refugees are welcome, no matter how they get to the United Kingdom, encouraging in effect, Matthew, the illegal crossings from France to the United Kingdom. And they hang their hat, I'm sure, on ESG. We yeah. saw Oxfam. One of my, um, one of my yeah, favorite sorry. examples of this yeah. was, was Ben and Jerry's who came out um, just before um, Russia uh, invaded Ukraine and said that the, the West should stop invading, uh, should stop, sorry, providing weapons to Ukraine. So Ben and Jerry is this kind of very, yeah. um, you know, left-wing Unilever-owned brand, but they, they, they try to be quite woke in their left-wing in their politics, kind of taking the Russian side as, as the, the correct way to go. I think there's, there's a lot of different ways we, we can go from here in our discussion. I think there's, there's some interesting points here around um, the, the kind of what is the purpose of a company and, and ultimately it, yeah. when you put all these other goals into um, uh, businesses and, and they, they pursue you know, work capitalism or stakeholder capitalism as opposed to shareholder capitalism, they, they end up kind of misusing the, the capital that, that is owned by their shareholders. In this, in the case of, case of NatWest, a large chunk of that in fact was capital, which is still owned by the taxpayer. Um, 
but I'm, I'm kind of more interested in this specific case in some ways because of the mess the government's getting itself into here, which is if your logic is right, and I think there's a lot to it um, about the SG governance, I think there's also some other elements here around politically exposed persons that have more specifically led to deep um, regulation that's led to, to debanking of individuals, um, a, a, as well as on top of that kind of anti-money laundering regulation that's also um, arguably incentivized uh, a kind of risk-averse precautioning approach. Because yeah. um, if, if there's someone who's potentially in, in politically exposed, the amount of profit you're going to make from having their bank account is, is much less than the, the potential cost of regulatory compliance and then the potential risk of um, getting fined if you don't handle their, their money properly. So therefore, you, you see debanking of a lot of high-profile figures um, and that's, or anyone who could potentially um, have controversy as kind of an unintended cause of regulation. Um, but at the same time, the government's, at least the, you know, the, the current UK government has condemned um, NatWest, they put a lot of pressure onto NatWest to, uh, in relation to this situation. But it doesn't seem like they're willing to talk about the ways in which state, the state could act in a, in, a, in a positive way to reduce some of these regulatory incentives. Um, it, it seems like there's a, there's a bit of a hypocrisy here that they, they're complaining about NatWest, but it's the FCA, for example, who, who has extensive streams of work on ESG um, and, and the government's not changing the FCA's mandate in any meaningful way. No. So the, 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 the regulatory framework that the, the government itself is overseeing, some of it, in fact, that could now be um, change that the UK has left the European Union. Some of the, the, the politically exposed person and the anti-money laundering regulation comes from the EU, amongst other treaties, um, or could be modified and improved. Um, it, it doesn't seem like we have a very serious conversation about what's really driving no, we don't. this behaviour. We don't. And I mean, you mentioned the PET legislation, which is driven through the Financial Action Task Force, FATF. And it's a very interesting part of the EU effectively EU adopted legislatory sort of framework that we've got. And the reason I say it's interesting is because in this country, we used to operate on the basis that everything is permissible unless it's expressly prohibited. Um, that goes hand in hand with all of us being innocent unless we're proven to be guilty. It's the same kind of principle. Everything's allowed unless it's expressly prohibited. You're innocent and you're proven guilty. In the EU, in Europe, it's quite different. Things are only allowed if they're expressly permitted. And the adoption of the PEP regulations through the Financial Action Task Force, so the requirement for banks, financial institutions to vet politically exposed people more carefully is a presumption, is a step towards a presumption that you're somehow guilty of something if you're active politically that somehow you're going to be using your position as a politician, a person of influence to be gaining illegally or doing something slightly illicit. And that's put the burden on financial institutions dealing with PEPs. And um, by the way, that's global now. That's not just in Western developed uh, economies. That's global. I've had experiences in that, of that in third world countries. Um, but it's it's the wrong way around. It's a break on business, isn't it? When you put these restrictive obligations on businesses, a, a requirement for them to address a specific problem up front, there's a cost, as you mentioned, Matthew, associated with that. That puts a break on business. That is bad for the economic ecosystem. ESG is bad for the economic ecosystem. 
the pet regulations are bad for the economic ecosystem. If we want to maximize growth, if we want the economy to flourish, we've got to move away from these principles. Um, you know, people often say to me as Brexit, what would you ditch? Well, here we go. I ditch the pet regulations and I ditch ESG, you know, um, and, and, and go back to a more British way of doing things, which do whatever you like unless it's expressly prohibited. Um, so that's, that's that in a kind of nutshell. PEP, PEP didn't really, I think, come up. The PEP regulations didn't really come up with Nigel Farage. It was really focused, I think, on the ESG aspects much yeah. more. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm, and I'm then, kind of yeah. almost surprised they didn't. I mean, interesting enough, in, in, the, in the dossier that, that, that's kind of almost worth reading in full of the 40 pages, it mentions accusations that he was linked to Russia. But surely if anyone had the ability to assess that fully, it would be the bankers at Coots who could literally see his transactions. Where his money was coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's such a low below the belt kind of accusation, unless you've got real evidence for it. And it goes back to our Europeanized way of thinking. 40 years in the EU, 40 years of doing stuff the way the Europeans do. We've moved away from the Anglo-Saxon a free-spirited capitalist system. And ESG is, the way I see ESG, it's the uh, infiltration of European socialism into our private sector. And it's bad, you know, from, as far as I see it, it's bad. So as, as a solution to some of this, um, and the government's been talking about this specifically as well, um, and, and I hinted at it earlier, the question of whether or not there, there should be a, a duty on banks to be politically non-discriminatory or to support free speech as a, a condition of their banking licenses. Um, and there, there are some there are some people who make an argument on the lines of perhaps not completely unfairly that banks have given a special privileged position um, as a result of having a banking license. Um, NatWest in particular is partly government owned, but every bank has an implicit guarantee of a state bailout Absolutely. Um, and, and, and therefore they should provide services to everyone no matter their um, political inclination. Now I, I, I'm certainly in favor of the, the kind of the moral case fact that, that I don't think banks, you know, we, we should we should be calling out banks some, you know, for poor behavior. I'm less certain that about using regulation to achieve that goal. I'm kind of interested in your thoughts though. Yeah so I mean every, you know we have a propensity in this country instead of reducing taxes to increase spending we have a propensity, instead of to deregulate, to liberate, we regulate to control and to put right other injustices that we've identified. As a matter of broad principle, I would like to go back to a more deregulated approach to the way we operate. And instead of saying to the banks, you must ensure that you treat everyone equally and trying then to define what that means, I would be more inclined to say ESG is gone you know you no longer have to comply with ESG and allow banks let let the economic ecosystem determine how it's going to sort itself out ultimately banks need to make money to survive and you know if banks are going to adopt policies which deter customers from banking with them and banking is an inherently competitive industry customers will go elsewhere and I would hope that the deregulation of banks, as opposed to the foisting of further regulations on them in order to ensure that or try to ensure that they're behaving properly, I would I, I would prefer I, I would hope that the deregulation of them would get, get them to do the right thing. Yeah. And, and if perhaps not every bank does the right thing, if there's, there's less a regulatory burden on the sector, potentially there could be more banks 
So if if there are kind of woke left wing banks, they uh, are like that West. That they, they, they could be a you know um, Nigel Farage Brexit bank that doesn't let people bank if they vote Remain with them, but um, provides services <laughs> as an alternative. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's a very peculiar economy we'd be creating, but that's what would happen. And actually, fine enough, Matthew, I'm looking at banks at the moment with a view to, you know, finding a bank that I can make an investment in, which would take a different view to Coots and NatWest on these issues, because there is a real need to do it for the benefit of the United Kingdom. For as long as be, there are banks that are going to prejudice against people like Nigel, as you said, there's an economic case for a bank that promotes people like Nigel, or very happy to have people like Nigel yeah. as their customers. At least there's an economic case, but I think part of the problem at the moment would be that there'd be very little regulatory case for that, for all the reasons we'll discuss. I think exactly. A bank, would, a bank would struggle to take a higher risk appetite when it comes to regulation, um, which, which is why you need to solve the underlying regulatory issues, as you've said. But, you know, you, you mentioned the government requiring banks to um, not discriminate amongst its customers, a, a regulation that would require it not to discriminate. Well, if they brought such a regulation in, it would abut against completely diversity and inclusion, because diversity and inclusion at a fundamental level is discriminating amongst your clients. It's saying... We're going to give people from ethnic minorities a better chance. You know, we're going to give them better terms. We're going to give them a leg up in a way that we won't give the ethnic majority, you know, being indigenous white British people. And so you would get one regulation actually contradicting the other. If you're with me, I don't know. You, that's the problem with over-regulating. You end up with this, you know, morass of regulations all over the place. Indeed. Every, every, I think you say it's a lot across a lot of regulations where there's, there's contradictory goals and, and the government just puts all the goals in there in the hope that somebody else will sort it out rather than, <laughs> yeah. rather than trying to figure yeah. out what the trade-offs going on are. Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Benabib, uh, for you. joining the IEA podcast. For those who are enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider and you can learn more about the IEA by visiting IEA.org.uk.